0: Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham.
1: Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 28. We're getting close to Matt's highly anticipated episode 32. So I will let him start the show off today by telling you about his one news note here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can't actually remember what it was. It's something to do with Segway. That's what I've basically been pulling my hair out on for for the last couple of days oh I did bring my notes I did bring my notes yeah bloody segue Um, I don't know I'm trying to I'm trying to make well we did make something that just makes plots of seismic data Like that's all it does uh, along with a little like histogram and a spectrum just as with a side label with like the the text header in the side label uh, as a sort of convenience and then it turns out and it's open source it's on a on a github but there's a seismic processing company in Calgary that started using it as like a sort of business critical component of their <laughs> of their like, you know, client interaction uh, to make PDFs of their seismic lines to sort of show them because you can like put a sort of copyright notice and that kind of thing on there too. And they came along and were like, can you make this do 3D? So I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay. That doesn't sound too bad. Of course, it's horrendous. Um, be just for various reasons, like, you know, t- t- inline and cross line numbers don't always start at one, so you have got to like read them out of the file and then sort of preserve them through your kind of plotting shenanigans. And in fact, it turns out, at least the way we load seismic data, SegWi files, um, you don't a priori know the shape of the, of the 3D, right? If you just, essentially, we just read in a bunch of traces and then you have to shape that into a, an array that you can take slices out of or plot or whatever. And I'm trying to do that in a really clever way by, by essentially, because you can't rely on any of the trace headers. So you have to essentially guess. So I'm trying to get the, my software to do what a human does, which is basically look at some of the headers, plot them and see which ones look like they might be in line and crossline numbers.
0: It sounds fascinating. Is it going to be open source?
1: Uh, it is open source. Yeah, it's, my flailing is already out there for everyone to see. It's Good very, truth. it's very embarrassing. I want to burn the whole thing to the ground and start again. It's awful. It's <laughs> it, anyway. So anyway, I'll stop talking now. But I mean, it, just like <laughs> if anyone's got any bright ideas, just help because I'm <laughs> flailing so badly.
0: I've got I've got one bullet point of news in here, but it's a shameless plug. And so instead of just giving you that, uh, I will give two shameless plugs here, one of which is not for my own services, uh, which may soften the blow. So first thing is Matt's company, Agile Geoscience, or Agile Scientific now, has a product called Pick This. You can find it at pickthis.io, and they just added a cool new picture to pick on, so it's a social interpretation uh, app, and it's a lot of fun to play, uh, and they have a new seismic line where you pick a ground reference level, and it's pretty cool. So, on to shameless plug number two, which is, Sandstone finally has absolute impedance inversion up for sale. Yay! So we've finished a case study. It's running and awesome, and you can visit us at sandstoneoilandgas.com for a quote. Nice. okay so today we are honored to have Ian Phillips here with us he is CEO of the OGIC which is the oil and gas innovation center over there in Aberdeen welcome Ian
2: so uh, I guess for you it's good morning for me it's good afternoon but hello
0: thanks for joining us on the show today we've got some notes here um, where guests can find you. you if you jump into the show notes we've got Ian's LinkedIn on there um, and it's extensive. I, in in doing some prep for this show, I didn't realize you had such an extensive technical background.
2: I can, uh, so so all the stuff that you were talking about before about uh, Segway and uh, impedance, yeah, most of that makes sense to me. Although although I'm from the uh, from the dark side, I'm a reservoir engineer by training. So uh, in the yeah, early, pa- early <laughs> parts of my career, I was doing all this three D reservoir simulation nonsense, which. Uh, is even more of a dark art than seismic interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: like it. Um, so it was, uh, you got an engineering degree, went back and did some business stuff. How did how did you wind up in, in business from, from engineering?
2: So um, I did a first degree in civil engineering. I loved the degree. I hated being a civil engineer with a passion. And I looked around for some alternative and I stumbled across this weird thing called the oil and gas industry. And um, I actually joined Shell as an IT trainee. I was learning all about massive, great IBM computer mainframes. And they sent me offshore to learn all about the offshore industry. And I loved it to do. So I went back to university the first time, and I did a master's in petroleum engineering. But when I did it, I seriously looked at doing an MBA because I was interested in how business ticked. But ultimately, I couldn't see how you, you employed somebody with just an MBA so i did my masters in petroleum engineering was a petroleum engineer for a while but then i discovered i could do an mba through distance learning and so this was in the days pre-internet so i used to get box loads of books delivered to my house and i (laughs) waded through them at midnight and one o'clock in the morning and had to physically attend events to sort of get that that human interaction thing but yeah i i got an mba and as a result i've most of my career since then, I've kind of straddled the technology or technical and the commercial interface. So in the late 90s, when I worked for Halliburton, I was part of the early range of integrated solutions people, where a service company was trying to figure out how to make a bit more money by investing some cash in a client's project and getting a better than normal return. Um, More recently, I've been involved in trying to set up a business to do carbon capture and storage as a try to make a business out of climate change. Um, unfortunately, when we set up the business, there were something like 1,200 projects worldwide which looked like they would go someplace. Um, unfortunately, they all relied on governments. And I think about four of them actually happened, all in the US and perversely, all the CO2 is being sold to, would you believe, oil companies to produce more oil. So, uh, hey, stuff happens. So for the last two years, you're right, I've been the chief executive of this thing called OGIC, the Oil and Gas Innovation Centre. It is one of eight innovation centres funded by the Scottish government. And they came up with a very clever model. The basic idea is to use government money to help companies to do innovation. And we sit on the interface between what companies need to do and what universities can do. And we facilitate introductions. and we have a small pile of cash to provide grant supports to help make it happen.
1: Hmm. And does, does anything, what goes on at the actual location in your offices, are there companies working there, do you lots of no.
2: host people? No, no. so we, we are a straight facilitation agency, so what we do is a bunch of events, we both create our own events, we attend other people's events, trying hmm. to engage in conversation with companies in the oil and gas sector, which could be anything from a large operator through small operator tier one service contractor right the way down to probably good half of our customers are actually one and two man startups, and right. what we what we offer is a proposition which says if you've got a problem that it looks like university land can help with, well we can probably help you find the university. Um, for, just for clarity, I'm funded by the Scottish government, so the answer is a Scottish university. Uh, but then if we find that university and there's a project that looks like it's usefully to be done then we provide financial support to help make it happen oh, that's
1: pretty cool so, so
2: my team are basically project managers and business development people um, one particular thing we do is you get assigned one person who holds your hand from pretty much the first meeting right the way through to the end of the project so you've got one point of contact Unusually for a government funding agency. We have a couple of people like myself who are from the mainstream of the industry. So that makes a huge difference. If you're a Company wondering if the government can help you to have somebody actually kind of been there, seen it and done it is pretty important.
0: Certainly. So you guys out on the street looking for new projects so you
2: They're In the happy position uh, with the downturn what happened is the, the original big vision, which was really big projects is not what's happened because so many companies have just said you know what that R&D budget is toast (laughs) so what we've got is a lot more smaller projects and right now we've got plenty of cash available Uh, a typical project for us might be $150,000 with a company and we might be providing a 50% grant so we're providing $75,000 straight cash um, the only constraint is we can only put our money in, into the Scottish university, but we have companies out of the US doing just this. Hmm. Great, great support, real, real new technology developments. Um, we've got rinky-dink little startup companies here in Aberdeen. Uh, we treat them all equally, and we make a very similar to offer to all of them.
1: Mm-hmm. That's amazing.
2: Have you? Um like I, I imagine, the mood in Aberdeen s-
1: slid pretty badly in sort of sort of 2015, and then probably continuing. Uh, uh, like uh, hopefully, it's starting to turn around. But I mean, I know I was just in Calgary, and it—I'd it, say it hasn't really turned a corner there yet.
2: Um, Although, so, so, so uh, the North Sea is kind of collateral damage in the Saudi Arabian uh, grand right. s- scheme of things. You know, they were going after the expensive oil, so deep water, shale oil, and the Canadian tar sand oil, all of which needs sort of fifty to seventy to eighty dollars a barrel to break even. Mm. So the North Sea, which just happens to be a damned expensive place to produce oil, um, kind of got hit along the way. So a, a lot of companies have been badly hit. Probably the biggest hit, to be honest, has um, been uh, folks involved in deep water. Uh, you know, most mm. of the oil companies, unless they had a project already committed, and you're in year two or three of maybe a four or five year project there is literally nothing happening so really big companies like sub c7 and technique have taken a pasting now They've laid 50 60 of their people off yeah. they they've mothballed or scrapped like a third of their fleet so yeah companies like that are really really hurting and inevitably there's a kind of a cascade effect the smaller guys also struggling yeah. what i find in the ogic business is the, the companies that are able to Still invest money in R and D are generally what you might call near to the wellhead. They're they're involved in production-related activity, Mm -hmm. and um, I would say all of our projects, probably ninety percent of our projects, are save the customer money projects, and the other ten percent are health or safety-related projects. Mm -hmm. But what? Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, sort of as a follow-up, like one thing that
1: I'm really hopeful that sort of comes out of the other side of this downturn I guess is a sort of uh, increased interest in entrepreneurship uh, and sort of startups partly because uh, you know just I I guess people are looking for options right people are looking for optionality and and although they're risky and expensive and many of them of course will fail uh, if you're doing it right I guess um, I think it would be really cool if one of the things that we see is is a kind of bubbling up of more ideas and more attempts to provide value in
2: new ways. Are you seeing any signs of that? Uh, absolutely I, I would say yeah. right now a good 50% of the potential new projects that we have are with folks who've one way or another been let go by the others in the oil industry and mm-hmm. in some cases they've been let go with quite a decent Um, redundancy package so particularly folks folks of oil companies folks out of big service companies maybe have a year of income as a buffer and so they are taking the plunge and saying oh that great idea that I've been chewing over I'm gonna see if I can make it happen Mm -hmm. so I guess particularly pertinent to this audience um, we have one company that has come up with a mathematical approach to I'm going to call it more systematically take the risk out of subsurface interpretation so you know I guess the the mainstream approach in subsurface interpretation is to use Monte Carlo simulation to look at multiple scenarios and you you kind of say well it looks like it's this range so what they do is go one beyond that and try and apply a little more thought and intelligence to each individual variable So you end up with a much tighter range on the possible outcomes. So essentially de-risking by looking at the data we already have in a different way. Now that company and that idea started 12 months ago and it was two guys. They're already up to a dozen guys and we're funding phase two of the project to see if they can get the algorithms robust enough that they can actually sell them commercially. Awesome.
0: That's excellent. So we have several listeners who are small business owners, and they do R&D projects on their own with their little team. Uh, if one of these people were interested in doing a R&D project, and they, they wanted to um, enlist the help of the OGIC, how would they who would they get in touch with? How do they start this process?
2: Yeah, so um, very simple answer. Uh, our website is ogic.co.uk, my particulars are on there, and I guess the first thing is, either drop me an email or give me a call um, we're a small team there are only eight of us uh, so we sit in a small open plan space so very quickly i would be able to advise whether we could help and if we could help we would kick things off um, i guess the crucial thing and the different thing compared with a lot of government funds is in the first discussion we'll tell you pretty quickly whether we can help you or whether we can't so if we can then 95% of that of those projects end up being funded. So it's, a, from a point of view of efficiency, it's about as efficient as we can make it. Um, also, we'll tell you if we can't help. And if we can't help, then we, we also have a, a remit to point people to other sources of money. Now clearly, some of, some of the audience will be US-based. Um, my knowledge and our, my organization's knowledge is essentially about UK money that's available. I, I'm learning a little bits and pieces about the US arrangements as I go along. But if you've got a company uh, in the US, for instance, that thinks it could use university help and figures that maybe a grant of 50% would just make life a little bit better, well, my number one metric is how much leverage do I get? So how much extra money can I attract into a Scottish university? I'll also ask a few pointy questions about application to the North Sea, because that's you know a little further down the list. I've got metrics like that. But ultimately, even if it's a U.S.-based company and you never end up in Aberdeen, actually, that's okay.
0: (laughs) Excellent. It sounds like a great program. So while we've got you here on the program, it seems like you're in uh, a unique position to answer this question, which we've been asking many of our guests, which is, and it's shifted actually just in the past couple of weeks, uh, we're starting to see some upward pressure on the price of oil, right, the commodity price. Um, do you find uh, across the spectrum uh, that that there is the possibility that the downward pressure is proportional to the production? Right, for example, um, once it, it, one, one viewpoint could be that once production picks up, um, it's very, it's it's fast enough to get high production rates on in unconventional,s thus deflating the the price again. Do you do you find that to be true? Do you think that there is some hope? Okay.
2: <laughs> so, so um, I, I guess I'm old enough to have uh, seen not just one but like three or four of these downturns. Uh, right. this, is, this, this is possibly the most brutal of the lot in this in in the sense of the proportion of the the fall and the duration of the fall. Um, so I'll make a couple of comments. One is, we are a market which is completely abnormal. If you're making cans of baked beans or you're making Krispy Kreme donuts, you quickly understand if there's no market and you stop making them, and you the the price can flex and the supply can flex very very quickly. Sure. We're we're in an industry which has got on the big offshore project, a five year lead time, and the. So that has historically led to quite long periods of glut as oil price drops because there's an oversupply, companies stop investing in projects, and then eventually all the price comes back up and then it takes a bit longer for people to get comfortable and then they start investing. I do think that the particularly the phenomenon of shale oil and to a lesser extent shale gas has fundamentally and completely changed the marketplace. You've now got Relatively for relatively modest investment and for a very a relatively short time frame, you can switch on more production. Mm-hmm. So, I, th- I think that shale oil is now the big, um, what I call it control valve on price. As, as soon as price goes up a few dollars, a few more shale oil plays, or even just down to a few more shale oil wells, will be economic. And with payback, you know, the, the dominant production is it lives less than 12 months on these wells. So the whole economics, the payback is fast. And as a result, I think the, I, I cannot imagine the market going back to where it was anytime soon. And when you look at the absolute quantities of shale oil, I mean, I know reserves are a complete pig to try and figure out, but the in place is enormous. And that's just in the US. Um, you know, there are places around the rest of the world where the, resource ownership is different, but you know, the in place is just vast, you know, like fifteen and twenty times the currently known in place oil from conventional reserves. So, you know, if China decides to do shale oil, or if Europe decides that, hey, we can actually do with a few a bit of this, you know, it just trashes the any preconceptions you had about the market.
0: So oil is Krispy Kreme donuts now? Pretty close.
2: <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe not quite so flavorsome, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> uh, interesting. It, it's a, it's an interesting standpoint. I mean, wh- wh- how do you... Uh, is deep water done? I mean, you know, these are 10-year projects that come on, and they're... I don't know. Can so, they compete? Uh, so,
2: so BP's just um, approved a huge investment in Deepwater Gulf of Mexico, literally in the last 48 hours. Uh, was it Mad Dog 2. Uh, at something like nine billion dollars of investment, so no, I don't think it's dead, but I do think some of what you might call the wild frontiers probably ain't going to happen. So, you know, um, famously, Shell has pulled out of Arctic exploration because that was always going to be damned expensive, yep. probably in deep water with a, a few random sprinkling of icebergs, and you know, it's just it's just in the too hard category. Mm-hmm. Um, a different question: a different question is who's got all this oil. Because, you know, right now the, the conventional reserves dominated by national oil companies, um, the shale reserves actually mostly dominated by small organizations. So in that case, some of the big guys are beginning to get into it. But it's not really, you know, this sort of rapid turnaround, quick, fast stuff is not what big oil is particularly good at. So I think there's a big challenge for big oil you know, in, the, in the sense of the BP's and the Shell's and the Exxon and the totals of this world as to where do they find viable oil uh, in the next
0: 20 or 30 years. Well, that is a tough thing to predict. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was wearing my uh, university lecturer hat, I could say, disgust. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, um, I have a, a note here in, in the uh, show notes. Uh, you're, you're an external lecturer at Aberdeen Business yeah. School. Um, how's that going, and, and how much time do you spend doing it?
2: Um, so, the, root, the origins of this are when I did my MBA, um, I contributed to the statistic that said 80% of people who did an MBA quit their current employer within two years Uh, I did that so what I did was I I I went and I worked for uh, Robert Gordon University which is one of the universities in Aberdeen and I created a module called oil and gas management which is pretty much a high-level overview of the industry and I continue to do that it has changed a lot so it's now entirely digital, it's available through a virtual learning environment, I've recorded video versions of my lectures, so uh, but it's uh, fundamentally it's there and I do it because I enjoy doing it, the the interaction with people hungry for knowledge about the industry is massively stimulating. Hmm. And
1: uh, what is the sort of uh, interest in those sorts of courses? I mean I guess anything related to oil and gas whether it's technical subsurface or management stuff, like is there s- it's still a-, a funnel of students coming into those?
2: So th- there is, st- there are still students but the the uh, sort of bums on seats has gone down sharply and that is true, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's true across all oil and gas related programs. So um, my alma mater Harriet Watts has had a significant downtick in applications. They've still got a lot more applicants than they have places but it's... You know, the, 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 when you've got a downtick, it means you're generally, standards just go down a bit. There are new programs coming in, and they've been struggling. And for the oil-related but not technical courses, so things like an oil and gas MBA, they've mm. seen like 60%, 70% drop-off in, uh, in attendance. So it's, uh, it's hurt the universities quite significantly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, you, you don't always think about all the knock-on effects of, of these uh, these downturns but I mean it can result in you know funding decisions and the aspirations of young people and things that
2: actually take years and years to c- turn around. So wearing my Society of Petroleum Engineers hat we have a, um, one, one part of our programme is outreach to schools and mm. um, one of the things, our message in the, re- in the last six or nine months in particular has been sure the industry's hurting but it ain't dead. And that message has been a surprise to quite a lot of people. So um, a little earlier we were talking about are we seeing any sort of uptick. Now despite the, you know, the continued job losses which are still happening in the Aberdeen market, there are companies now recruiting. So I've actually seen adverts for reservoir engineers in the last few months, for example. Um, that there's, There are some signs of things gradually coming back. But it's uh, it's a difficult message to to tell young people and particularly for the North Sea, which is um, I think you'd characterize it as in advancing middle age. You know, the UK sector peaked at about three and a half million barrels of oil equivalent. It's now down about a million and a half and it's on a slow decline. There are things that could be done that might improve that. But ultimately, it's it's kind of old we found most of the big blindingly obvious fields and now we're finding a lot of much, much smaller accumulations and yeah, yeah, that's typical as a a basin matures.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think um, from a sort of subsurface science perspective, and I I think this applies less so to the engineering side of things, well it definitely does. So way less to the engineering Mm. side of things. Is that uh, you know geology and geophysics have not really found their role yet in shale gas. Like I would hmm. say that they're um, you know geologists and geophysicists do of course work on those projects. Many of the geophysicists are actually more involved in the completion side of things, microseismic and so on. Um, as far as sort of exploration and characterization goes, my observation at least, and and this could be a bit out of date because it's a while since I worked shale is that the contributions from geoscience are, are not um, not there yet when you compare them to sort of rank exploration or even oil sands.
2: Um, yeah. so, so, so my observation is that the, um, I guess, the technical challenge with shale is fundamentally different. So you, you, you find something like the Marcellus or the Bakken and its vast areas. So to be honest, whether you tell me to the nearest cubic kilometer or two of how big it is, it, it's enormous. So the yes. cha- the, ch- the challenge is a different thing and it's how do you confidently access the reserves and I think that's where the big unknowns are. You know, essentially, you whack a well in and what is it, something like 60% of them are successful well, you know, by industry standards, that's quite good, but it also means that 40% of them are not successful. And that sort of not successful, to be honest. We're not sure why. Um, mm. You know, you, you, you go, you place a well in a position, you frack it, and nothing happens. And you, ah, damn, that wasn't what yeah. was meant to happen. You know, in, in certainly the, the, um, there's been some work done in the UK looking at the, the shale oil um, accumulations here, and there are definitely some sweeter spots which you can actually resolve on seismic they're, they're trying to understand what the characteristics are that allow you to identify them but it's that's a kind of unusual and it's one of these things where you need an awful lot of science studying to figure it out and yeah so i, I would generally agree your observation that the the geosciences are um, it's not less relevant but they're certainly um, i think they've got currently less to offer um, you know, there's always a cost thing you know if you could do something, but actually you need a ten million dollar four D seismic program over five years. Um, mm. Actually, well, I'll just we'll just go frack some wells and we'll get some oil anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: That's right. Although, although I mean, like you say that you know they're they're mostly successful. Um, so it's completely different sort of statistics from a yeah. like expert like you know just discovery sort of success point yeah. of view. Yeah. But um, it's another thing that seems a bit unclear. And I, again. Um, this might be a dated view because there's obviously a lot more data now, but um, the initial production rates are not necessarily highly correlated with the sort of life of the well and the ongoing production over time, right? So it seems like there's another big variable there that's not that we don't understand yeah. yet because these plays just aren't very old.
2: Well, I think there's a bit about what we don't understand I and mean, the, the, the big challenge is, you know, we uh, the technology we use the, is called fracking, but actually, if you look at the full name, it's massive hydraulic fracking. This is taking a whacking great sledgehammer and applying it firmly to a small walnut, and you kind of see what happens. And the so the understanding of the propagation of fracture path paths and how those fracture paths then interact with the low permeability rock that contains the oil i would suggest is a, a, a both at the small scale and the large scale not well understood yeah mm-hmm.
0: well i'd like to I've, i'd like to step back to education for a second i, I notice on the uh, ojic website that uh, you're offering a masters degree in oil and gas innovation yeah. is, is that that sounds like about the coolest degree i've ever heard of is well, that,
2: it is it, it is pretty cool really i mean uh, i have to say that having been involved in trying to set it up I'm just glad it's happening, because it's been yeah. tough. But the, um, the, the proposition came from the Scottish Funding Council, which is the agency that funds us. And they fund both research and taught programs in Scottish universities. And uh, I, we are one of eight innovation centers. And each of the innovation centers is asked to consider what skills agenda should they have. Now, in the case of oil and gas, we're actually extremely well served by existing conventional programs. So you can go do well-established taught masters in petroleum engineering and subsea engineering and drilling engineering and all these good things. So we looked at what else we could do. And what we came up with was a bit of a hybrid. So this is a program where you get 75% of the academic credits from doing an innovative project. Mm And 25% from a taught component, which are essentially business school skills. So, how do you commercialise new technology? Um, how do you raise finance for new technology? So, the the um, the program has this is it's in its first year. We had available a total of 30 places. We've actually filled 16 of them, and that's actually more to do with a couple of the participating universities not getting their um, administrative stuff together beforehand. So. I, it feels to me like it's found a decent niche in the market and we will continue it. The big attraction is that company, individuals can do the project um, in their own company. So you can do it part-time mm-hmm. and, in effect, gain a master's degree whilst um, doing useful work for your company and, crucially, whilst still being paid. Um, what kind of so projects
0: are the students working on?
2: Um, mostly ones that I can't tell you about because otherwise I'd be shot. but um broadly speaking they are as the title would suggest innovative projects generally projects where from the company's point of view um they wouldn't normally devote their own resource to doing the program doing the investigation because it's too expensive Mm -hmm. but now that there's a student who's kind of available uh yeah we'll do that and so they're it's helping different companies to develop new technologies generally quite near-to-market
0: technologies so is this this is a are these technical projects or are they business uh, types I mean,
2: of projects? all of the projects are you you would describe them as technical they generally mechanical engineering materials science that sort of thing
0: so that seems to fit well with the, the OGICS, uh mission statement of uh, developing new technologies yeah. and advancing um, the industry. Excellent. Well, that, that sounds like a really neat opportunity and uh, is sort of a unique opportunity in so far as many of the, as you mentioned, the, the two-year degrees, the master's degrees that you're going to do while you're in uh, working for a company uh, can, can limit you in some ways if you're, yeah. if you're focused on something that maybe is not innovative. You know, um,
1: I've, I've got a, yeah. a question though about, because um, uh, uh, how, how to frame this. You, you, may, you may disagree with my opinion or premise here, but uh, <laughs> I'll give it. I'll give it a shot. Um, I feel like the the things that you would do, the things that you do to be sort of innovative as a as an individual or as a team, are not necessarily the same. And I'd say even go so far as to say in some cases they're the opposite of the things that you would do to generate an innovative culture inside an organization or an innovative culture indeed in our in our community of you know geoscience or say SPE or something like that and um and that that troubles me a bit you know so for instance the uh you know, views about patents, views about sort of secrecy, uh, things like, you know, uh, non-disclosures and all this kind of thing are uh, in, <laughs> they're weirdly and sort of paradoxically counter-innovative when you consider them at a sort of systemic scale. Like, so I, I, I'm just curious if you guys have thought about that for your course and how your course can help contribute to making sort of good citizens of an innovative community, if you see what I mean. Sorry, it's a, a bit of a woolly question.
2: Yeah. but so, so I'll give you a woolly answer then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think I, I, I absolutely agree with the basic premise of your question. So if I say it in different words, if you're an individual, a creative individual, you have lots of ideas. Um, you kind of want to talk about to people about them. But if you want to make money out of them, then actually you don't want to talk to people, at least not until right. you've, got a, you've got a patent. And, then you've got sort of wider ecosystems, whether it's in um, societal ones like the patent system or you've got ecosystems within a, a larger company which claims to foster innovation but actually squashes it quite heavily. So the, the, there is, I think, a bit of a, a, there are several paradoxes. There is a lot of business school evidence that says the richest source of innovation tends to be small organizations like one, two, three, four people who have a degree of education and understanding about the process of making money from innovation. And the, so having people who are clever with their innovation and with business skills is hugely valuable because ultimately that's how stuff will get to market. One of the peculiar features of the oil and gas industry is I think in the UK without exception, and it's very common in the US, the aspiration of an entrepreneur is to be successful enough that some big guy buys them out, because right. that's how that's how they're going to make their rewards for their innovation. Mm-hmm. Now you compare that with Silicon Valley, where you know people aspire to be Google, and they they aspire to do that from a start in their garage. You know, it, it's it's just a different expectation. So I think there are nuances to the. Uh, to the whole sort of innovation thing. And I think the, the big challenge with the oil and gas sector is, you know, even in low cost onshore wells, it's damned expensive to do things compared to creating an app or creating a food product or something like that. So the ability of the small guy to really scale up an innovation is actually quite low. And so you that's, I think, why we've evolved this ecosystem where New guys, small guys start things up, get a good idea, they get proof of concept, they maybe sell a few of it and then they actually try and cash out. Sometimes it's the only way to get the product to grow and to further develop. That said, I, I also think that our larger organizations in our industry are uniformly rubbish at nurturing these their acquisitions and continuing to grow them. There is a Big portfolio in any one of the big service companies of products that they bought, which they have not made money from.
0: True. Uh, so yeah, uh, monetize
2: uncom- uncomfortable, but true. It's
0: it, it is true. I mean, once you, once you do the big sale, uh, the monetization becomes paramount uh, compared to the innovation, the development of the technology or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that actually that leads me into my last question, which is, uh, I, it's it is you've you followed this fascinating career path where you started in engineering, you got this uh, rigorous technical knowledge, this background, and moved into the business side of the industry. And it seems to me like that is a hugely important thing, as you mentioned, uh, innovation drives change and. And it is the ultimate source of monetization right um, how, how would you how would you i mean would you guide a student or a, a any young person to learn some sort of technical field before they attempt to get into a, a business position
2: <laughs> yeah so I, I have an opinion which is not uni- universally held or not universally popular, but I don't see the point of just doing management education. I think you, I think it's great to have management education, but to have a business that you apply it to. So if you, for instance, do computer science and you get involved in uh, a new web-based company and you, in addition, get business skills and that helps you to grow the company, I think that's brilliant. But yeah. the folk, folks who you like, just get the management skills. So they know how to read a balance sheet. They know know how to do um, sort of rolling one company into another, at least they know the theory of it. I mean, we sort of need those functions, I get that. But whether you need people who are just doing that, and that's that's all the skill they've got, that's where I struggle a bit. So um, a personal view, I favor the get the technical skill and then add uh, the management skill
0: second second follow-up question uh can you learn the business skill by doing it um or should should is it beneficial to go get that mba
2: um you can learn it while you're doing it i'm not sure you will learn it just magically by osmosis i think there is some value in doing what i will call some structured learning Mm -hmm. does it need to be an mba i don't think so you know there are Pretty good short management programs that are available in various places. Um, in the UK, we have a structure where you can do a certificate in management followed by a diploma in management before you scale the heights of an MBA. So, I think there are there are different levels of program which are appropriate. Sure, if your only plan is to get to be in the boardroom in a C-level position, an MBA is a pretty helpful tool to have in the armory. But if you're aspiring to be really good at technology innovation. I think it's useful to have some of the basic management skills. Do you have to take a, a couple of years out and go do an MBA? No. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, I, that's, it's fascinating to hear that from someone who's, who's done it. So uh, I want to I thank I- I- Ian Phillips again for joining us on the show today. Uh, thanks for coming on, Ian. Pleasure. Right, Cheers, Ian. Guys, join us next week on Undersampled Radio for the holiday episode, in which you will hear Matt and I's Kiki Christmas gift guide. <laughs> uh, see you next week. Bye. See you, bye.